I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. to our citywide sermon series called One Nation Under God. Last Sunday we spoke on the subject, One Nation Under God starts with me. Individual responsibility. You don't expect the government to do what you're responsible for. Amen? Amen. Today we're going to speak on something different, but first we want to ask a couple questions. One Nation Under God. Does my family reflect this? Does your family reflect this? Do our families reflect this? This title, One Nation Under God, comes from our Pledge of Allegiance, a Baptist preacher for the 400th year celebration of Columbus' discovery of the New World. A pledge was written for children to say in celebration of that day, and it got a hold in our culture, and over the years it changed and evolved into what it is now. In 1954, partly in response to godless atheistic communism, uh, our government added the words under God. President Eisenhower signed it into the flag code. And the words used to say, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all, the words under God were added without a comma. It's one nation under God, comma, indivisible, comma, with liberty and justice for all. So one nation under God is what we declare, our children declare, what we want our nation to be, what we pledge our allegiance to. And of course, when the pledge was first written, uh, children were to, to uh, salute the flag by holding their palm upward and their arm outstretched toward the flag, their right arm, my pledge allegiance to my flag was the opening words of the first deal. But during World War II, this looked a whole lot like <laughs> So in the 40s, it was changed to us placing our hand over our heart or the military saluting the flag, which, of course, was already in place. Well, today we're going to speak on the subject of one nation under God, is built on strong families. Can we say strong? strong? Strong families. Have you found Joshua 24? We're not going to read the whole chapter, but let me explain the context and then uh, extract or dive into the meat of the chapter. Uh, Joshua is fixing to be out of here. He's really old. He's served a long time. And uh, this isn't the day he died, but it was close to it. 
And he gathered all the tribes of Israel together to a specific place and called for the elders, for their heads and for their judges and for their officers. They presented themselves before God. Now this is, you know, millions of people. So he's talking to the leaders who will relay the message to, to their people. This is how word spread without PA system. And Joshua said to all the people, and of course this is being written by the persons who wrote the book of Joshua, thus says the Lord God of Israel, he begins to prophesy, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times. And they served other gods. Then I took your, your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. And he goes into the glorious story of the Exodus, from going through the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's armies, and um, encountering the problems they had when they were conquering the land. And he ends with these words, Now therefore, verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord. Can we say revere? Respect. Honor. Be in awe of. Fear. Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Notice the word there, Lord, is in capitals. Serve Yahweh or serve Jehovah, verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So he gives them this decision. You're going to serve all these false gods or are you going to serve Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord? Verse 16, so the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they go on and make this great promise, which their children don't keep. The next book begins uh, almost as though it's part of this book. The book of Judges is born, and the history of the taking of the land and the governing of the land through judges was done and people would fall away from the Lord, turn to other gods, and then God would raise up a prophet, raise up a man, raise up women even to bring deliverance to them. They would turn their hearts back to the Lord and then they would fall away back from the Lord and turn to other gods. And we may think, oh, how spiritually immature they are. But sometimes we get our eyes off of Jesus, don't we? Get them on the economy get our eyes on politics, get our eyes on our enemies, be in awe of other things other than awesome God. As for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. Now, we see the potential of greatness there in the green meadow in the picture, but then there's a rather a dilapidated house. And that happens sometimes not through our own fault, but maybe the fault of a spouse that left, or maybe it is our own fault. But we're not playing the blame game here today. I, I guarantee every person is going to leave here fired up by the grace of God, if the Lord wills, and encouraged. But I want to talk, first of all, about the importance of the family. Human history started with a family. Didn't start with a bundle of worms or germs or moss or fungi. Started with a family, according to the Bible. Adam and his wife, their sons. I don't know where their wives came from, but God's got all that figured out and their descendants were born. So human history starts with a family. So family is the first form of government. And for us, it's the first form of government. Why does a government exist? Why do we need it? Because anarchy will take over and bad people will, will ruin everything for everyone and life will become short-lived and greed will run the land. So we need government for justice. We need government for mercy. We need government for regulation where things need to be made fair. Uh, we need government for security. We need government for the people and by the people. Can I get an amen? Well, you're born into a family, and that family seeks to have a just system of operating, a system of fairness, regulated by your parents, security made safe, given an identity. Family was the first form of government that you existed, that you experienced. The history of Israel started with a family. Abraham left the household of his father to start this new nation that God had promised him. In Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will bless him who curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families, say families, of the earth shall be blessed. I mean, of course, we know that was in his son Jesus, his descendant, Jesus. The Lord also told Jacob, his grandson, that this family would be a source of blessing to all the earth's families. Remember the story of Bethel, Jacob's ladder? God appears to him and speaks to him and says in Genesis 28, 13, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. So he's laying down with this rock for his pillow, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, singular, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the New Testament refers to this promise and says that that seed is Jesus. Jesus came to bless families. The Old Testament's final verses give a promise with a warning related to to families. Look at this, the last two verses of the Old Testament. This is the ending of the Old Testament, then there's 400 years of silence, and then the Gospels 
take place through the birth of Jesus, all right? So the Old Testament ends with these words, a prophecy through the prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This was fulfilled in Jesus. In his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, not cursed. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, came in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the way for Jesus. And Christ, through the ministry that John the Baptist began, just segued right into what John was doing and brought uh, grace and truth, mercy and peace to those that needed it. He blessed children everywhere he went. He was a blessing to family, and if he changes your life, he will bless your family. The hearts of the fathers and children must be turned to each other, towards each other, otherwise there's a curse. Understand in prison, Mother's Day and Father's Day cards are made available to prisoners at various uh, incarceration places across the country. For Mother's Day, there's a high demand for these free cards to send their mama a card. Father's Day, very little requests come in. There's a message in that. There is a curse that comes when the enemy divides fathers from their children. In fulfilling this prophecy, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah and his cousin Jesus, yes, Mary, was the niece of Elizabeth, his mother, came to the world through a family. Jesus was subject to his earthly parents and had four younger brothers and at least two sisters. He was part of a family. The Bible is all about family. You ever read the scriptures and you get into this so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so? Why is that there? Because God values family. It's who you are. You're the son of, you're Simon, you're the son of Jonah. James and John, you're the sons of Zebedee. And those women that were there at the empty tomb, some of them were mothers to his disciples. So he related to families. He called brothers to follow him. James and John were brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. His own brothers, James and Jude, wrote books in the New Testament. Jesus is into family. And he blessed kids and said, unless you become as a child, you can't enter my kingdom. And children love their families, don't they? And so it is that Christ came to fulfill the last verse of the Old Testament. You know what's the cry of our culture? Our culture is crying out for fathers' hearts to be turned towards their children. All the great movies, mostly dramas, but even Star Wars, has the father-child issue in it. It's even part of the latest movie that just came out, Jack Reacher. Father-child issue going on in that. So many. It's the cry of our culture. It's the need in the hearts of man. And of course, we know ultimately we need our Father God, don't we? We do. In his earthly ministry, Jesus would often minister to groups of relatives. We covered that already. The history of the USA started with multiple families looking for a better life. Now, I know England sometimes would send ships of prisoners over, 
But the Mayflower, families were on board that thing. Families translated themselves from transplanted themselves from a place that was tough to live in, persecution, all kinds of other problems, to come looking for a better life. Now, the history of our nation is not perfect. There's a lot of embarrassing things in our history, and this is one. While not true for slaves, they didn't come here looking for a better life. They were brought here against their will. Their descendants now continue this, des- this desire for a better life. They want a better life for their families as well. So this is part of the human condition. We want a better life for our families. Our history is shaped most for good or bad, not by politics. Now, politics has an impact. It has an influence, but it doesn't shape things the most. Not by economics and not by our enemies. Influence how we travel. It's such a hassle now to fly anywhere. But I tell you what, the greatest difference is made at home. And our history is shaped the most for good by the godly success of our families. Being one nation under God involves our families being under God as he ordained. This is where it starts. This is the foundation. These, our families are the building blocks of our nation. Why is our nation in the condition it is in? Look at the families of our nation. Do we hold this biblical value? Look at this. In Ephesians chapter 5, being inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, Paul writes to wives and husbands about marriage. says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not to somebody else's husband, your own husband. You're to be devoted to your own husband to serve him. For the husband is the head of the wife his own wife, not other people's wives, his wife. As Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. And we say own. Their own husbands in everything. Can't have a divided heart in this thing. Husbands love your wives, not somebody else's wife. Well, what if she's single? Well, she's not your wife. She's somebody else's wife. She's Jesus' wife until she gets married. So she's someone's future wife. So focus your attention. If that's a warning for somebody and you feel your heart being drawn away by somebody else, man, snatch that heart up and run to Jesus. Say, Jesus, center me up. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why did he die for the church? that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word. And that's not beating us over the head with the Bible, but that's in love telling us the truth, that he may present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So the verse for husbands is for husbands to apply. The verse for wives is for wives to apply. It's not for us to use against each other. So husbands, don't be telling your wives to submit to me. Don't do that. That's between her and God how she works that out. Let the Lord lead and guide her. And wives, don't be telling your husbands, die for me. No, let the Lord work that out. Amen? And children are part of this as well. The next chapter begins, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's right. 
Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So it's part of the Ten Commandments. It has a promise in it. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, why do you want to disrespect the person that has done the most for you? Why do you want to disrespect the person that most likely would give you a kidney if you needed one or part of their liver if you needed one? They're most likely to have the genetic match anyway for you. Why disrespect somebody like that, that cares about you more than anybody else? Well, they won't let me play my video games. Well, it's the first form of government. When you leave home, you can play all the video games you want and just live like a slob if you want. But under your parents' roof, they're there to teach you and you honor them, things will go well for you. Some people have lives that are just a wreck because they dishonored their parents. If that's you, go back and repent and ask for their forgiveness. Doesn't mean you have to go live back under their roof and do what they tell you. If you're grown, you're on your own. But you've got to start honoring them somewhere if you want things to go well for you. And if you, and if you want to live a long time. The length of our life is impacted by the honoring of our parents. Years ago, we had to do a funeral for one of our teenagers. Hated it. He was driving down a road. His parents told him to never drive down and was killed in a car wreck. Does that mean every kid that disobeys would be killed? No, that would be the end of the human race. But I tell you what, you, you, increase, you increase the likelihood of a wreck happening but they're not doing what they tell you. Now, parents, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't exasperate them. My children used to say, stop revoking me. <laughs> Don't pick on them. Don't show your power by belittling them. But bring them up in the discipline, discipling them, and instruction of the Lord. How does the Lord discipline you? How does he instruct you? That's what you're to do to them. Another verse says, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. Why do you want to destroy the will your child needs to face life? You'll turn them into an underachiever or in other cases, an overachiever. We have an, uh, one of the candidates for, well, they're both overachievers, but one of them is an overachiever based on her childhood. She would get straight A's. Her father couldn't say, well, you could do better. He would just say, that school must really be making things simple these days and just belittle her. So don't do that to your kids. Don't discourage them. Encourage them. Sure, they can do better, but there's a way to do it without discouraging them and picking on them and provoking them to anger. I'll find myself wanting to please the crowd. I'll find myself wanting to please the crowd. I'll need you to remind me that I should obey God. That I should obey God. I'll act like I don't have any problems. I'll need you to show me how to share my struggles with others. I want to have a lot of money so I can buy what I want. I'll need you to teach me that my things belong to God. That my things belong to God. I'll struggle with my looks and appearance. I'll need you to remind me that God wonderfully made me. I'll tend to think about myself before others. I'll need you to teach me that the last will become first. 
The last will become first. The last will become first. I'll think I'm a lot smarter than I actually am. I'll think I'm a lot smarter than I actually am. I'll need you to show me how to learn from God's wisdom. I'll want to avoid hard conversations. I'll want to avoid hard conversations. I'll need you to show me how to speak the truth. In love. In love. I'll look for happiness in many different places. I'll need you to show me that joy is found in following Christ. I'll find myself stuck in bad habits. I'll need you to show me the way out. I'll need you to show me the way out. I'll need you. I'll need you. I'll need you. I'll need you. To point me toward Christ when no one else will. To point me toward Christ when no one else will. Of course, we know kids don't tell us those things. They many times will tell us the opposite, that that's the truth. It's illustrated there. One nation under God is built on strong families. Do our families reflect this? Or are our families strong? Can they be stronger? Is this the mantra for your life? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I have a new hero. This is Dan Moody. He's long gone on to meet his maker. Um, He was the youngest governor in the state of Texas. 1924, he was 34 when he took office at the end of that year. He ran against Ma Ferguson. Now, Paul Ferguson had been governor and got impeached for corruption. So in his corruption, announced his wife's candidacy without asking her. And she won uh, because of the other choices, I guess. And He continued his corrupt activity during this man's life. And during that season, uh, a virus called the Ku Klux Klan began to sweep across the nation. Now, the KKK had started, a group called the KKK had started in the 1900s to fight against reconstruction of our country, and it kind of went underground, appeared to be dormant. And a disgruntled preacher in Atlanta started a group and called it the KKK and grew it to several thousand people and got discouraged. So he hired a marketing company who reorganized what he was doing and formed it as a multi-level marketing organization so that if people would join, they would pay dues. And if you signed someone up with dues and you were on a certain level, you would get kickback from that. So this thing grew to like 3 million people in every state of the union. The last state it came to was Texas. And in no time, it grew to over 170,000 members. This was in the early 20s. And uh, one of the ways they would get attention, they would come to a town and find out what was the biggest church in town and uh, do a little research and discover who uh, was the neediest person in that church. And on a Sunday morning during the hymn singing, they would show up in full regalia with an envelope of cash, small bills to make it big. And the pastor would give them the floor because they would say, hey, we want to make a presentation to the neediest person here. And they would call up Widow Jones or, you know, Grandpa Smith and present them this money. Now, keep in mind, these people are in their costumes in full regalia. You know, their hoods are pulled back over their pointy hats so they can see their faces. 
And they recruited people to come to a meeting. This would get attention, you know, the pastor may, may be pro it, or Ooh, I'm glad that's over. Meanwhile, his members are being lured into this thing. And in no time, it grew to 170,000 people, and they began to win elections. Started in towns, began to win mayorships, and judges with the KKK began to win positions. And this thing was growing, and he at the time was county attorney, and when he was approached by the KKK, he denounced them to their face, and they said, well, you won't get reelected. You watch this. So he knew that he could become district attorney because there was nobody else running for it, and so he, through uh, his connections, actually expedited things and was made district attorney and hauled them to court and had four of them put into prison. And this case was well-known. It was in the news all across the nation. Uh, the newspapers were against the KKK. They were alarmed against it, and so the story picked up. And the courtroom sessions would go on for hours, sometimes till after 9 o'clock at night, this case. And he got the first guy in prison, and a preacher in prison, and another guy in prison, another guy in prison. And um, it stopped the momentum of the growth of this thing. And part of the way he did it was he used the KKK against itself through, through the using of evidence. He had them turning on each other and betraying each other, and it broke the back of the thing. The thing nationally began to shrink and shrivel up and became nothing like it was. 1922 began with a thing appearing to be going to be a national force. By the end of 22, no more. Has been. He became famous. So he ran for governor and won and cleaned up all the corruption, all the kickbacks that were going on with the Fergusons, Ma and Paul Ferguson, and served for two terms. And when he left office, he was penniless. He was not corrupt. Started his law firm, of course, and began to prosper. Now, what do we know about his childhood? I don't know much. There's a museum uh, of the the house he was born in, in Taylor, Texas. I understand there's some barbecue places there, too. I'd like to make a road trip to Taylor to just try to find out some more about him. But I did learn his parents were strict. So they're strong parents. And his uncles, his mama's brothers, were involved in his life. And they were an influence on him. And part of the reason why he went to UTA and pursued a law degree, he wanted to be like his uncles. Strong families make strong nations. Who knows is who is sitting at your table? He may have a snotty nose today. She may be a crybaby. But you are raising champions. You are raising world changers You're raising people with potential that you can't see. Well, my parents never saw my potential. Yeah, and look what, see how hard that makes it for you to show potential. Make a difference in your life and begin to make your family stronger. Why do Jewish families normally tend to prosper? Culturally, they celebrate Shabbat on Friday night. It's kind of like 
a mini Christmas. And if they're very religious, that meal ends with a time of blessing over every member of the family every week. Why don't Gentile families do that? What do they do on Friday night? They get drunk and cuss their kids and tell them they won't be ever worth anything and they're useless and they're a piece of crap. And We curse our kids rather than bless them. And children normally rise up to the level of your expectations. So you're raising world changers. If that kind of thing is happening in your life, make a difference. Change it. Make a difference. Can we pray? Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that those that it related to the most would be inspired to continue to have a strong family or to strengthen their family more than ever. And Lord, while we are concerned about the direction of our country politically, Lord, may we not be, may we not be distracted from the priority of our children and of our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a sermon like this could leave a lot of people in the 21st century feeling condemned. I don't want to do that. The story's not over for any person in this room. The story's not over. You can pray. You can center your life up on Christ and begin to do His will from this day forward. You can begin to make a difference. And you can receive prayer. Maybe you have a child in prison today that just makes you feel like such a failure. No, no, the story's not over. Pray for that kid. I used to work with a friend named Dale Smith, and he lost custody of his kids. As a wild young man, he played in honky-tonks in Austin. In fact, the band he had got hijacked by a young guitar player, Stevie Ray Vaughan, 16 years old, joined his band, and they kicked him out of it. He's a wild guy. Lost touch with his two kids. Became a believer. And he began to pray. When he found them, they were pretty much grown. But they too were believers. And were going on things like mission trips. There's authority when a father prays. There's power when a mother calls on God. There is restoration. America needs restoration of families. And it begins at the house of God. It begins with us. But how can we help people restore their families when we need ours restored? So don't give up hope. Be encouraged. God wants to restore your family more than you want to see it restored. He's not like, oh, you should have listened to me. No. Come home. I'll make a difference. Can, can we stand? And I'm going to uh, give you an opportunity. If you're not comfortable with doing this, you don't have to. But I really encourage you to, to do something different today. Turn around to people around you and get to know them. Greet them. Introduce yourself if you don't know them. Form circles of three or four, any more than five or six. It would just be too big. You, can't, you won't have enough time to pray in the time we have left in the service. But if if you have need to pray about anything, it could be your family, it could be your children, it could be an ex from Texas or Tennessee or whatever. 
could be your extended family. Let's end the service by praying and receiving prayer. Can we do that? All right, let's do it. As Pastor Shake plays some music, let's, let's pray for our marriages, our children, our descendants, our future, and of course, our nation.